Well, greetings and welcome to each of you this morning. It's good to be gathered together with you in, in the Lord's house where the Lord assembles with His saints. And I certainly have, have sensed that this morning that there was a, a, a worship of the Lord this morning, and that is, that is beautiful to see. I want to invite you to, well, I want to welcome all the visitors and those who aren't usually here this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all the home folks that could be here as well. I know some are over at Hannah's Gap, um, where Philip and Christy are, so uh, we're missing a number. Thank you for being here. <clears throat> I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 51, and we want to we want to, to cover the last of this passage, and I've entitled this message, The Worship That God Delights In. The Worship That God Delights In. One of the things that we understand about uh, God creating us is that He created us to worship Him. In wrapped up in all of our lives, in everything we do, in the, in the, from, from the most mundane and common thing to the highest thing we, can, we, we do. Worship of God affects who we are. It's who, what we were created for. So as we, as we look here, uh, let's think about the worship of of God. We're going to begin in verse 10 and read to the end of the chapter. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, and the guilt and the deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and the whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bulls on your altar. Let's pray. Father, we just simply ask for your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word to us this morning, to reveal its truths to us, or to be able to turn our hearts to your word and implant your word in our hearts so that we might be obedient to you, so that our worship may be pleasing to you, and that we would do as you have called us to do, worship you 
in spirit, and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are at this place in this passage where we're, we're now David is coming to the end of this, of this psalm that he has written, and it's a reflection. It's David looking back upon his coming out of his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. Um, we understand that uh, this was a dark time for David. This was a time where David, for some time, covered this sin up, made it appear as though everything was going on as normal. But in his own heart and in his own life, he knew things were wrong. They were not right. In fact, we come here to this place and we understand that he desires something so different than what he had before. We're just going to read a couple verses in introduction uh, back in Psalm 32 and in verse 3. I want to read verses 3 through 7. He said, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. Consider for just a minute what the Lord has done in David's life. The Lord has afflicted him with conviction of sin. There is nothing like the guilt of of sin, to drive a man to desperation or a woman to desperation. You can take some of the hardest criminals in prison, been there for years and years, who can cover their, their sin up with all kinds of things on the surface, but they can't hardly deal with the guilt unless Christ, unless God forgives them. You see, David's sin, as he acknowledged, was against God. First of all, and it's the guilt that drives a person to despair. But God, in his great mercy, drove David to the point of looking to him. He led David to the place where David cried out to him. He brought David to the living waters where he could repent. And listen, if if conviction of sin this morning brings you to repentance, though it is a miserable thing, it is a wonderfully blessed thing. Because the conviction of sin brings upon us an understanding of how impossible it is for us to save ourselves. It, it brings upon us the understanding that we have no ability to turn our lives around. It takes the grace of God worked upon us to bring us to a place 
of repentance and make us new creatures. We are now at the place where David is, is, is wanting to be fully restored. Sometimes when Satan comes in, friends, it's like a tornado that goes through an area where the trees and the buildings and everything is devastated. It's just, it's just mass chaos and devastation. What used to be beautiful and grand has become a place of disaster. When Satan is done with a life, that's what he does. He leaves chaos and ruin and disaster. It's not right for us to ignore this fact. In fact, David is, is here understanding the disaster his sin has brought. And that he needs to be built from the ground up, if you please, in the inner man. Hence we have the cry. After he has cried out in verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. He turns to God, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. A right spirit. David realizes that his highest calling is to be able to come back to the true worship of God. He realizes that the thing that's messed up the most in his life is the inability to truly worship God. And friends, it's no different for us. We look at this passage, I think we ought to look into the mirror of God's Word and we ought to reflect upon ourselves. We ought to ask ourselves this question. Is God creating a clean heart and a steadfast spirit within me? Or have I been just hiding my transgressions? Whosoever covers his sin shall not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. God is a spirit and he will only be worshiped and served by those who are completely broken and contrite in spirit before him. So let's look at this from this passage and we're going to begin in verse 15 and go through verse 19. Number one, we'll look at David's desire to have true worship restored. Number two, we want to look at the worship God doesn't want. Number three, we want to look at God's requirement for true worship. Number four, we want to look at the grace of God that produces acceptable worship. And number five, we want to look at pleasing God in genuine worship. Let's look here in verse 15. He says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. David here has a desire that worship would be restored in his life. That true worship to God didn't matter what anybody else thought anymore. This, this thing's all out. It's all in the open. This is who he, who he is and what he's done. He's now looking for restoration. He wants to clean up the mess. And he wants to build back. He wants God to build back in his life. And so he says, open my mouth that I may praise you. And he sees, first of all, he, the word, O oh Lord, is used here. 
Lord here is the word is the term Adonai or master or the supreme one. He's humbling himself under the, the authority and leadership of God, and he's saying, I need you to lead me, God. If I'm going to open my mouth and really praise you as you ought to be praised, you're going to have to open my lips. You're going to have to make it come out. You're going to have to actually give me the ability and the heart to do this. And for all of us, the thing that keeps us the most from worshiping God is our sin. The thing that brings forth the praise of God is the cleansing of our sin, the cleanness of the heart, the pureness that God gives in salvation, the holiness He brings to our lives. In fact, the greater our understanding of, of the forgiveness of God and the grace of God, the higher will be our praise. We, we can't praise Him unless we've repented. We, can't, we have no ability to worship Him if sin rests unrepented of upon our hearts. It's easy, friends, for us to come here, and it's easy for us to come every Sunday, and we just kind of do the same thing over and over again. It's one thing I appreciated this morning, is, I, is, that, is the fact that there was a true, seemed to be a true sense of, of worship to God. And as we come, brothers and sisters, we must understand that God must leave us, lead us in order to, to be able to praise Him acceptably, the way that He ought to be praised, the way He should be praised. Jesus echoes this in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 33. Let me read this for you. You don't have to turn there. Sorry, I think I'm rolling here. Matthew 12, verse 33. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Fruit of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. The problem is, the problem with our worship is the problem of our heart. Our mouth says, or doesn't say, what the heart is set upon or is not set upon. You know, it's amazing to me sometimes you have someone who is bowed down with care and which they're struggling. And somebody comes along and talks to them about the goodness of God and His grace and His mercy. And soon they begin to realize what God has done for them. And that, that care just seems for a time anyway to be lifted off of them. And, and, and they can worship and praise God because their heart is full, too, of His thanksgiving and worship. But you can take someone who shows up to church every Sunday and his heart is hard toward God. And it doesn't take long where you find out where his heart is. You know, the worship and the praise, the adoration, the lifting up of the Lord, 
doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And David is here being honest. He's saying, I desire that worship be restored. But Lord, unless you open my mouth, I don't have anything to say anymore. My life is a wreck. And I don't have anything to add to you. I want to ask you this morning, how are you worshiping today? What is your worship like? Does it flow out of God's leadership in your heart to lead you, to guide you, to change that which was ruined by sin, to create a new, clean, new and clean heart within you? Is that where it comes from? See, eloquence and the ability to speak well or to sing well or to pray well is not going to lead us into true worship. Those things don't bring about true worship. They can be an expression of true worship. I think we should be, be caring about how we present our worship to God. They are not the source. The elements of true worship come from God-led and God-centered worship in the heart. I want to ask you this morning, is your heart full of Christ? Is your heart full of Christ? If your heart is full of making money, or your heart is full of your pleasure, or your heart is full of the thing you want to do next week, it can go on and on and on. It can even be good. It can even be things that are right to do. But if your heart is full of that, you don't have the ability to worship God. The king of your heart is who you will worship. If God is at the throne of your heart, if he's on that throne, you'll worship him. And you'll join in when others, too, are worshiping him. You'll be drawn to that. But if you resist it, and I'm not talking about some emotional, flamboyant, I'm talking about true worship from the heart. If you resist that, and it's, it's not fitting in your heart, it's not that there's a problem with God. It's not, a problem, not that there's a problem with the way He desires to be worshipped. It's not that there's a problem with true worship. The problem is the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem in the heart. And so let's look at what David says. Secondly, though he has this desire, he understands that there's a worship God does not want. There's a worship. God can't receive. Let's look at this. He says, For you do not desire sacrifice. And that word desire actually means to delight in. Delight in sacrifice, or else I would give it. What is David saying? You know, didn't God say that you must come to me with a lamb and with a bullock and with a or with a goat, with with you know, at the proper offering at the proper time, sometimes it was grain, sometimes it was a dove. What, why is David saying you don't, now you're saying you don't want it? Well, what he's saying here is that forcing an outward form of worship is something that God is not pleased with. Forcing an outward form of worship is something God 
is not pleased with. True worship is not just about going to the Lord's house and doing the right things that, that go along with worship, which is what this would have been for David, is to go and give a sacrifice and a burnt offering. That would have been in proper line of worship for him. But he says, the Lord doesn't even want that from me. My heart's hard toward him. It's been calloused. It's been recalcitrant. I've, I've, I've rebelled against the Lord. It's not going to the Lord's house and doing the right things that go along with worship or saying the right words that, 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 are, that are right for worship. If this is all God's required, it says, David says, I'd be willing to give it. I'd gladly give it. I'll gladly do that. That would be my, I would, I would love to. Be my joy to do that. But David says, I refuse to give God what he does not want. I refuse to give him what he does not want. Let's turn with me, if you will. We're going to hold our place here. Let's go to Isaiah 1. In Isaiah 1, we find here that the Lord is what the Lord has to say to people who come this way. And what he, what he thinks about it and what, it's, what, it's, what he's going to do against them. Verse, let's begin in verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude... Let's back up verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? Do you tra to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the call and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Notice verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil from before your doings. I'm sorry. Put, the evil, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. You see, these people were coming, and they were worshiping God in this great, momentous way. They had this pomp and this and this this certain form that they that they carried with them. God says, "I'm tired of it. 
I don't want it anymore. It's, it's your iniquity is all bound up in what you're doing. He says, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Put away the evil from before of your doings from before my eyes. What did those things look like? Let's look at what he says. Learn to do good. They weren't, they weren't being good to, to their fellow men. He says, learn, seek justice. Try to do the right thing. Try to be, be honest about things, but that's not what they were doing. Rebuke the oppressor. Instead of rebuking the oppressor, they were the oppressors. They oppressed others to get wealthy off of, off of as many people as they could. They took, they, they says, defend the fatherless, those who can't fend for themselves, those who are in trouble, who have, who, who have difficulty making a living. Stand up for them. Defend them. But instead, they were exploiting them. Plead for the widow. Someone else who is helpless in many ways. He says, plead for them. Don't take advantage of them. Don't use them for your benefit. You see, sin hardens our hearts so that even that which appears right and good has evil in its intent. At the heart is where evil is born. Jesus said, it's not that which you put into your mouth that defiles you. It's that which comes out of your mouth that defiles you. It's, it's the work that puts on a pious front that has an evil intent behind it. That David says, God, I know you don't want that. You hate that. You despise that. And we see from Isaiah, God says, put that stuff away. You see, it's coming to the acknowledgement that sin is ruining my life. Sin has turned me upside down and taken the good, whatever good could have been there, out of my life. It has been that way since the fall, friends. You're not alone. I'm not alone in this. Every generation has faced the has had to face the, the nature of their sin, and they're going to deal with the consequences of it unless they bring it to Christ. And this guilt that lies upon our hearts cannot be washed away except by God Himself. So many people try so many things to, to, to present themselves good before God and holy before God and right before God. But it's their own efforts to do their own things to make their own righteousness good enough for God to say, okay, I'll take it. And God says, I hate it. It's an abomination to me. Friends, we have to hate it too. That's the problem. We have to hate it too. The, the clean heart that God creates in a new man comes to hate hypocrisy. We got to hate it here first. It's not about looking at my brother and sister and saying, well, I see that there and I see that over there. It's about looking right here. You know, it's about taking care of my problem. 
And that's what David is wanting to do. He's saying, God, I could come with all this stuff. But unless, unless there's something changed, you're not going to want it. You're not going to have it. God says, you notice he said, I'm going to close my ears to them. I'm not going to look at them anymore. They're going to call out to me and I'm not going to answer them. Friends, I wonder how many people come to church Sunday after Sunday and, and, and put on a grand show of worship. And yet, God won't hear a thing they say because they refuse His grace. Are you and I as truthful about our worship to God as David is here? Are we at the same place? David's at the place where God wants him. He understands it's not him. It's God working in him that will bring him to worship. Do you, or do you continue to try to give God what he doesn't want? Are you trying to give God what he says? I, I despise it. I hate it. Remember when Saul was sent to kill the Amalekites? He came back with the spoil and King Agag. And Samuel said, he, came, he comes to Samuel and said, I've done all the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, what, what do I hear? Bleeding of sheep, the lowing of oxen. Well, you know, he goes on about making his excuses. What does Samuel tell him there? God has not delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as that we obey Him. For, he says, rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. Meaning that you're putting yourself, Saul, into the hand of Satan. Witchcraft is asking Satan to take over your life so that he can do with you whatever he wants. You see, God is more, more desirous of the heart being right than that things look right. Now, we, want, we want things to be as, look as they ought to look. We want them to be as they ought to be. But in this life, so much is never going to be right. We only can try on the outside. But it's the work of God it's the finger of God in the heart that makes the heart to be right with Him. It's His work. It's His molding and shaping. To force a performance of worship without obedience and submission in our hearts is rebellious and defiant. Rebellious against God and defiant of His word. We're standing against him. And James says that God hates the proud. He resists them. It's the humble he gives grace to. Let's lead this to the third point. We saw what God does not want. The requirement of God now for true worship. And we find this in verse 17. The sacrifices of God 
are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God delights in and he draws near to the brokenhearted sinner. You see, brokenness and contriteness of heart shows that what I've been trying to do is shattered. I'm done with it. And if we hold our finger here, hold our place here, and let's turn over to Psalm 34, and we look at verse 18 in Psalm 34, he says this, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Lord draws near when we're brokenhearted about our sin. The word contrite, the word broken for broken heart is broken. Broken in pieces. The word contrite means literally shattered. Unable to put it back together. You see, the brokenhearted ones are the ones God saves and He draws near because they're the ones who know that they have nothing of any value to offer to God. Their sin has destroyed them. And they come to Him. C.H. Spurgeon said, If you have a broken spirit, all idea of your own importance is gone. What is the use of a broken heart? Why, much the same as the use of a broken pot, or of a broken jug, or of a broken bottle. You realize, friends, a broken heart is like a broken jar. It's, it's useless for what God has intended it, for what it was intended to do. But it's those, friends, it's those that God has chosen to come to. These are the ones with whom He will live. And I want you to ask you this morning, are you willing to, 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 make, to make a discernment here? that the brokenness of your heart over your sin is going to be of far more value when God comes in than you maintaining your self-righteous state. You see, we have, to hold, we, have to, we have to hold this up and we have to evaluate it. You must count the cost. If my heart is to be broken and worthless before God, and I, and I put my trust in Him to, to raise me up, do I deem that that's far more valuable than what I lose in my brokenheartedness? Because when we, when we have a truly broken heart, we lay it all down. There's no money. There's no, no lands, there's no property, there's no, no value in this world, no gems that can match the weight of the creation of God in the heart. This is why God says, the sacrifices that I want come out of a broken heart. 
He chooses to look upon the broken heart, the broken-hearted worshiper, and he refuses the proud of heart. Turn with me again. We're going to go to Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah 66 and verse 1. Let's look at what God has to say here in Isaiah 66 in verse 1. Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 1. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made, and all these things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. He who kills a bull as if he slays a man, he who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck, he who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood, he who burns incense as if he blesses an idol, just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I choose their delusions and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I do not delight. What is he saying here? God is saying that I've got everything. I own it all. You're not going to add anything to me. What you bring is not Anything that I need or, want or necessarily want of itself. You know, all these things I have made and they exist. He said, I'm going to look at one person. There's one kind of people that I'm going to look at. And that, that one is the poor man. The one who's poor in spirit. Doesn't that bring back memories? Uh, Brother Terry's been preaching out of out of the Sermon on the Mount. And the very first beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of God. You, 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 you have the entire kingdom at your disposal if you are poor in spirit. The kingdom is yours. It's yours to inherit. Because God says, this is where I dwell. On who's poor, he's broken, he's shattered in spirit. His sin and the effects of his sin. And maybe not even sin, maybe just life. Which the, the troubles of life are ultimately go back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden where sin came into this world. But the troubles of life can break us. And they can shatter us. He says, that's where I'm going to look. Verses three, verse 3 is a little difficult to understand. The only thing I can, I could, I can get from this is that someone who, who is not broken in heart has no discernment about what God wants. 
when they come to sacrifice. They treat a dog like a lamb. It's, there's, there's no, there's, there's, you know, a grain offering is no different to them than a, than a pig. Those things, those are things God, where God said, I will not have you sacrificing a pig. A pig is an unclean animal. But so it is with the brokenhearted sinner. He comes wanting to bring what pleases God. Wanting to bring what God said, this is what I am pleased with. He, doesn't, he cares about what he brings. He cares the fa- about the fact that his heart has been unfaithful to God. He cares about the fact that he's lost some discernment in what God wants and what is right, and what is truly the good thing to do here. And God says, that's the one I want to meet with. The one who is admitting and knowing his condition. But let's notice the ones that that refuse to come this way. He says, in verse 4, I'm going to choose their delusions. I'm going to bring the delusion upon them. I'm going to bring the deceit. I'm going to deceive them. It's one thing, my friends, when we deceive ourselves, or even when Satan deceives us, or somebody else deceives us. God can give us mercy. He can grant grace to bring us to brokenness over that. But when God says, I'm going to deceive that person, then they are deceived, and there is no hope. This is a judgment of condemnation, and they have no hope. They have sinned and sinned and sinned, and finally God says, I'm going to let you go the way you wanted to go. I refuse to hear your cries. I refuse to hold you back. Turn with me to Isaiah 57 while we're here in Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah 57, and we will find here in verse 15. A very precious passage, passage of Scripture. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and the holy place with him who has a contrite an humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Let's read verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. What is God saying here? God is telling the people of Israel, I dwell. I'm not, not just visiting one time. I'm not just just." Wanting to, to help somebody for a day, I live there. I live with the humble. I live with the brokenhearted. I live with the contrite of spirit. This is the place where God says he will dwell. I mean, that's hallelujah. Because if you're brokenhearted this morning, God will dwell with you. If you're brokenhearted over your sin for him, with him. You see, he says here that he will revive the heart. 
He's going to make it a new heart. He's going to make it a clean heart. He's going to make it a heart that responds to him, that is going to respond in accordance with what he desires. That's going to be that which is pleasing to him. You know, if he was angry with us forever, if he was angry with us, our souls could not bear it. That's what he says. The souls which I have made, they, couldn't, they, they wouldn't be able to take it. Wrath of God is a heavy thing. So he, although he is high and lofty, although he is above all, although he is rich beyond measure, although he is dwelling in a place of infinite glory and, pureness, and purity and holiness, he says, I dwell with the contrite of heart. It's the humble man. It's the low man. It's the person who doesn't know what to do in their lives. That's where I'll dwell. By the way, friends, going back to Psalm 51, this is what it means for God to create a clean heart within us. A clean heart is a broken heart. A heart that's lifted up in pride is not a clean heart. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 16, verse 24 to 26. I'm not going to take the time to turn there, but he says, that if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake in the Gospels the same is going to save it. What Jesus is simply saying is, you need to be broken about your life. You, you, you're, you, you need to take up your cross, which is the instrument of death for you, which is the place where you die. I have to die to Chris Byler. Chris Byler has dreams, had hopes. He's had, I've had you know, things that I've had to, I had to let him be shattered. They have to be broken upon Christ so that he can build what he wants to build in me. It's writing God a blank check and signing it and giving it to him and say, put on there whatever you wish. Knowing that I have nothing to pay. Everything that God requires, he must supply. And that's why he's creating a new heart. Because what he requires, he's going to make the heart to fit that requirement. The broken heart and the crushed spirit, those are the, that's the place where God, that's the one God will never despise. He'll never look down on you and kick you again. He'll never treat you as scum. The problem is, very few, very few times in our lives do we understand what it means to be brokenhearted. We're more acquainted with pride than we are with brokenheartedness. Sometimes when we come to God, it's a stiff arm to the face because He wants us to be broken. So I want to ask you, how do you approach God today? Do you approach him with brokenheartedness? 
with everything laid on the altar, 100% sacrifice to Him? Are you crushed in spirit over the ruin and destruction that your sin, your pride, has produced in your life? Or do you still think that you have something of importance or value to give to God? I have this. I can do that. I'll be this. You see, to live in brokenness is to live with a clean heart. To live in brokenness is to live with a clean heart. Alexander McLaren says, the clean heart must continue contrite if it is not to cease to be clean. I'll read that again. The clean heart must continue contrite or, or shattered or broken if it is not to stop being clean. In other words, continue to be clean, it must continually be broken. And this is why we must continually come back to the cross. This is why we must continually come back to our Lord. Christian is not a Christian who, who firmly stands on his own thinking and his own conviction and he rallies around the, everything he can around the Scriptures and he pulls out his, his way and he strikes out and says, I'm doing this for God. That's not a Christian. Christian takes this book and he gets on the surgery table and he lets this book do surgery on him. And then he does what this book tells him to do because he wants God to be in control of his life. Last, last well, I've got to keep moving. I'm not quite done here. Notice in verse 18, the grace that produces true worship. He tells, he's, his prayer to God is, do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Grace from God is that which is to do what God requires. Grace is given to us to be able to worship God with a broken heart. Grace is that which brings us to the place where we accept what God has required of us as what we should do. And our hearts submit to doing it. You know, sometimes we don't, we, we think we don't, we disagree with what God asks us to do because it's really the root problem is we don't want to do it. We don't want to be there. Anywhere but there. But God is about to do in good pleasure, His good pleasure in His people so that they are built, so that they are strong. <coughs> Pardon me. So that they have Security and confidence in Him. David also realizes, pardon me, <clears throat> that his sin has affected Jerusalem. It's affected Israel. His sin has had an effect. It was just, <coughs> pardon me. Yes, it was something that was between him and Bathsheba and Uriah on this earth. But it had an effect on the whole nation of Israel. Let's not think that our sin is any different. Our sin 
has an effect on everybody around us. When you come to the worship, to the time of worship, and you carry the weight of your sin, and you want to present that to God, that affects you, but it affects everybody. If, if we all had this understanding that our security doesn't lie in how good we can make ourselves appear or how good we can do certain things, but our security, our keeping, our future lies in the fact that God will dwell with the brokenhearted. You know, when they walked around Zion, if you go, go to Psalm 48, it says, walk around Zion and mark her bulwarks. Mark all the things that are, that are so great and strong about her. You know what the main, the main thing that he says to, to, to notice? God is there. Here's where the Lord dwells. And when the nations of the earth came, up, came around and they looked at Jerusalem, it says they were scared. They ran in fear. They were troubled. Listen, <clears throat> our security is a spiritual security, and it's a security against Satan and what he would want to do in our midst. But, but dear brothers and sisters, do you understand that God is about the business of building His people a secure place? It is, it is the work of God to bring about security for us. He has already provided that in Christ. It is in Christ that we find that, but He wants us to know that it's there. He wants us to be assured of it. He wants us to be confident in the fact that when we are brokenhearted before Him, He will revive the broken heart. And He will save those of a contrite spirit. Let me ask you, if all our lives... I'm just taking this hypothetical. All our lives were broken. We lived our lives with hearts that are broken and contrite before the Lord, as He says here. What good things would God accomplish in this church? What good things would happen here if every one of us took this seriously? And I'm talking to myself, first of all. If I was broken over my sin, and I trusted Him. I think we'd have a revival. You see, if we take this as seriously as we should, we'll agree with David. Build the church. Make her strong. Secure her from that which is evil. And it will be because in every individual, God is working a work of shattering and rebuilding, shattering and rebuilding, shattering and rebuilding. He's going to destroy that which is of the flesh and raise up that which is of the Spirit. What would our future look like here? What would our future look like if we took this seriously today? Young men, young women, you're in a place where your future just lies before you. It's untread 
territory for you. You, 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 you're, you're looking upon life. You've got a lot of it before you. If today you take this seriously, what's your life going to look like 30 years from now? Many of you, 30 years from now, you'll be the age I am. If you take this seriously, friends, you, you will be a different person. God will do a work in you that, that cannot be done any other way. And I don't care where it takes you. I don't care what, what things you have to confess. I don't care what sin you have to lay aside. That's nothing compared to what God will do in the heart of a broken and contrite person. Apostle Paul was a man that was full of bitterness and hate toward the church. And when he became, when God broke him on the road to Damascus, there's a changed man that affected the direction of the church in the first century. Brothers and sisters, we have yet really here to understand what God will do in building Zion. We've seen it in the, in the past. Martin Luther was a man that got shattered by the Word of God. He didn't intend to start a reformation. And you know, he wasn't perfect. And there's a lot of things you can say about him that, were, that you, know, you wonder about. But he was shattered over his inability to save himself. And God built something that he could not stop. The Reformation came out of Martin Luther being shattered over the fact that the just shall live by their faith. You see, my friends, we serve the same God. We have the same sin problem. It's not a deficiency in God. I think we just simply don't hear the truth often enough. Now let's notice, lastly, the pleasure of God in genuine worship. Now he says, then you will be pleased. When this is going on, when God's work, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's the work of the Spirit in the Word, and He's building us up. <clears throat> now the very thing that He says before I hated, when you brought to me in a, in a hypocritical way, He says, you'll be pleased with the sacrifices that we give. <coughs> This means that God will delight in the sacrifices that come from a broken and contrite heart. Apostle Paul is an example of someone who made many great sacrifices, took many, many troubles upon himself for the kingdom of God, had much bodily suffering that he took on because of the kingdom of God. Suffered defa uh, defaming uh, ridicule and mockery for the kingdom of God. Was hated by many for the kingdom of God. 
Paul himself was shattered and continued to live a life of brokenness so that the kingdom of God could be built in, in, in his life. It simply means that as, they, as the people of God are broken, they come humbly and they give back to God everything that he gives to them. They give it back with worship. They say, this is right. God has shown you love. You love. Because God has worked love in your heart. God has given you grace. You're able to have grace with others. God has had much patience with you. Now you can have patience with others. You can't draw funds from an empty bank account. And a shattered heart has, a, has an empty bank account. But he's connected to the account of God. The love that the believer has for his, 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 his God, his people, the sinners, is drawn out of God's account. And God is well, well satisfied. He's well pleased when we use his funds to build his kingdom. What comes out for his glory from this church must be built by his grace. What goes forth as the message of salvation from this church should be that which is the grace of God poured into our hearts. And it starts in the house of God. It starts with us. God's kingdom must be built individual by individual. We're not looking <clears throat> to save mass numbers. We're looking to see the kingdom of God established in every believer. So I ask you this morning, how are you living before God? How are you living before Him? Is He pleased with your worship? It's what you're offering to Him, what He delights in. See, if, he, if what you're offering is, is what He delights in, it's the best place you can be. If not, then He's got a stiff hand, stiff arm to your face. He's pushing you away so that you become broken. So as we conclude this, we find that David discovered the secret of an humble and a broken heart. And I would just, I would just ask us let, us, let us learn something from him. Let's learn what, it, what God really asks of us. God is asking of us something that he is going to provide. And he will provide it. It's the blessedness of him being here with us. God has great store, great things in store for his church. And it is, he's only going to give those to the contrite and the lowly and the brokenhearted. Well, may God be with us and may we live broken and contrite lives. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Father, we come to you at the close of this passage and we just want to thank you, Lord, for the comfort that we have that you abide and dwell with the brokenhearted. You save such as are of contrite spirit. 
Oh, Lord, how many, how many times we forget that this is where we are supposed to live. How many times we have to face resistance from you because we forget. And I pray you would bring to our remembrance the great price that was paid for our salvation. And that if there is someone here that is not broken before you, Lord, they, they would experience the blessedness of the pure heart even in the midst of the grief of the shattered heart. I pray, Lord, that you would raise this church up, Lord, that your gospel would work effectively in our lives. They would complete that which you have intended for it to do. That we would sell ourselves completely, sell out completely for your glory. And our own pride and our own self-righteousness could be shattered. That we would live for your glory alone. And that we'd be pleased to dwell with you and you would be pleased to live in us. We worship you, Lord. We thank you. Amen.